Fair market value is the pinnacle issue for compliance generally, but especially for Stark Law compliance. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Thank you for joining me for episode number four for the Stark Integrity podcast the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Today, we're going to be focusing on fair market value. And from my perspective, fair market value is the pinnacle issue in compliance with financial arrangements with referring entities and individuals, uh, as well as for physicians who are referral sources. And obviously, if physicians are referral sources, then the Stark Law is applicable. Let me start this off about when I was general counsel for a hospital system. I think I've told everyone before in previous podcasts that I was both the general counsel as well as the compliance officer for a hospital system. And this is back in the late 90s. Uh, Would not happen today, but back in the late 90s, the OIG was okay with uh, me serving in both roles. But I would draft these contracts, like let's say, for example, a medical directorship for an executive and the executive would come into my office and I would say, well, this is all great. I've complied with the personal services arrangement exception to the Stark law, but can you tell me why you believe this arrangement is representative of fair market value? Deer in the headlights. They said, well, generally that's what the physician asked for. So, well, that doesn't help us defend the arrangement as being representative of fair market value. So from that point on, I understood the significance of fair market value within my hospital system. And I set up a very regimented process in order to evaluate fair market value and to document fair market value for each of our physician financial arrangements. So the purpose of this episode is to talk about fair market value. What does it mean? I'm going to provide some general applications for fair market value, but there will be definitely subsequent episodes where I'll be talking more about fair market value and the documentation process. And probably if there's any term that I use during this podcast, probably fair market value is going to be the one that I'm going to use most. Now, I always try to, to contrast the uh, the Stark application with the anti-kickback statute. And so this way, I'm going to start with the, the anti-kickback statute, which we all know is a felony. If the government can prove that there's intent to induce referrals, it's brought in application because it covers all health care services, not just referrals uh, from physicians of designated health services. But it's also narrower. The anti-kickback statute is narrower than the Stark Law because it only applies if the government can prove intent to induce referrals. 
Uh, and again, the Stark Law is broader because you have to fit within all the various requirements and intent is not a factor. And so basically what the government uh, has, has stated that, uh, and this is actually in a fraud alert, that if they can prove that anything of value uh, was, was provided that is not paid at fair market value, then there's an inference that the financial arrangement is offered to induce or reward the referral of business. So again, that, that means it's an inference. So if it's above fair market value, it can be an inference that the arrangement was intended to induce referrals and therefore would be a, a, a felony if the government could prove that case. So the government went on uh, with respect to the anti-kickback statute and says uh, there are three factors. Uh, the arrangement under which the hospitals could provide physicians with items or services for free or less than fair market value. If the, if the arrangement relieves physicians of a financial obligation that they would otherwise incur, and I'll talk about that later on in further episodes, you know, that's really focusing on commercial reasonableness. Or if the compensation is inflated to physicians for items or services, uh, then inflation would be above fair market value. So that's the anti-kickback statute. Let's turn to the Stark Law. And I have a lot of material to cover today, so I'll probably be just a tad bit long on this one. But as we know, the Stark Law was actually it was developed by a statute. And in the statute, it stated that uh, fair market value in general is the value at arm's length transactions consistent with the general market values. General market values is kind of the sub part of that definition that poses the most significant issues under the Stark Law. And so what the government did in the phase one regulations of 2001, they said general market value, and this is quote, it's a price that an asset would bring as a result of bona fide bargaining between well-informed buyers and sellers who are not otherwise in a position to generate business for the other party or the compensation that would be included in a service agreement as a result of bona fide bargaining between well-informed parties to the agreement who are not otherwise in a position to generate business for the other party on the date of acquisition of the asset or at the time of the service agreement, of the entering into the service agreement. So fair market value is really focused at the beginning as to when the arrangement was entered into, whether there is sufficient documentation or facts and circumstances that would deem the compensation to be fair market value. And I probably should have said this at the very beginning, but Quite a few of the exceptions and most of the compensation exceptions require that fair market value be a basis of the financial transaction. And, and they use words slightly differently in some of the exceptions. Some of the, the exceptions say that the compensation is fair market value. Others says that the compensation is consistent with, and other ones uh, would say that the compensation does not exceed fair market value. And some of those are important, like the fair market value exception has to be at fair market value, but some of the other exceptions basically says that the compensation cannot exceed fair market value. So let's say you know, one of the questions I get frequently is whether or not a physician can volunteer their services for a nonprofit to be a medical director. And the answer is clearly yes. Now, you can enter into a transaction, an agreement with the physician. And obviously, if the physician is going to be volunteering, then the compensation would be below fair market value. And therefore, the compensation would not exceed fair market value. 
Well, in the phase two regulations, just a little story about the phase two regulations uh, back uh, prior to 2004. So this must have been around 2002, 2003. I gave a presentation in Washington, D.C. on the fair market value documentation process that I had implemented at the hospital system that I was the compliance officer for. And one of the things that we did is we averaged benchmark data and then we applied the facts and circumstances to the physician transaction to the benchmark data. And when I returned home from that presentation, uh, it was a Monday morning and my assistant ran into my office and she said, somebody from the OIG's on the phone. I'm going, oh my gosh, what did we do? What did I do? And so when I got onto the telephone, the person from the OIG said, uh, this is not about you personally, Bob. This is not about your hospital, but we attended your presentation in Washington and we liked how you presented the documentation process that you had implemented about averaging benchmark sources. And they had a, you know, some conversations with me about that, which I believe was the seed that was planted for the fair market value safe harbor that occurred in the phase two regulations. The phase two regulations, this is the first time we're starting to see the alignment with benchmark data or the referencing to benchmark data, which I'll talk about uh, briefly in, in this presentation. But in the phase two regulations, there was a safe harbor under fair market value that basically said if the hourly rate was equal to or less than the average hourly rate for emergency room physicians in your service area with the assumption that your market had at least three emergency departments, then the compensation would be safe harbored as fair market value. And one time at a conference, I asked the question, how many of you relied on that component of the fair market value safe harbor? And literally everybody, uh, every conference that I asked that question was nobody relied on that. But one time one person did. And I uh, indicated I, afterwards, I went up to that person and said, can you give me the context? And it had to, to deal with an emergency department physician's compensation. And the uh, they were able to obtain the compensation from the other emergency department. So very limited use. The more important use was a secondary safe harbor, which was the averaging of at least four benchmark sources. Now, the safe harbor actually listed six, and by way of example, the Medical Group Management Association, the American uh, Medical Group Association, and Sullivan Cotter were, were listed, amongst others. And there were six of them that were embedded, but as long as the average was at the 50th percentile or less, and you took that total cash compensation and you divided that by 2,000 hours, then if the hourly rate that you were negotiating was at that 50th percentile or less by your specialty in question, then that was deemed to be fair market value. Now, in the phase three regulations in 2007, they took that definition, that safe harbor out of the regulation. And I believe that a couple things. Number one is uh, some of the referenced sources no longer existed. And secondly, some individuals were concerned that if the compensation were above the 50th percentile or they didn't use four sources, that that was going to be problematic. Well, it was a safe harbor. It was never intended to be a requirement, but uh, they still indicated when they took it out in the phase three regulations that it was a prudent methodology and it's one that has continued uh, through and even today. And I'll talk a little bit about the use of benchmark data later. When the final rules that went into effect in January of 2021, uh, they further you know, segregated uh, fair market value. So there's a general 
definition of fair market value as well as they applied uh, fair market value to rental of equipment, rental of office space. The general uh, segregation of the fair market value definition that exists today is it's the value in an arm's length transaction consistent with the general market value of the subject transaction. Now, I emphasize of the subject transaction because that is new. It's different from what was in the statute and it was different uh, from what was in the regulations previously. And so now the focus is really on the subject transaction and not looking generally at the market. And this is especially true when you're applying benchmark data because a lot of times we apply national benchmark data or regional benchmark data. But now they're saying that you can actually look at the subject transaction. So the same thing flows through with respect to the rental of office space uh, as well as the uh, rental of equipment, that you're looking at the, uh, the subject transaction, not taking into account the volume or value of referrals. And under the rental of office space that you cannot use or attribute value to the proximity or the convenience to the lessor, so this is the individual who owns the building, where the lessor is a potential source of patient referrals to the lessee. Uh, so that you look that, at that from the lessor's perspective, if the lessor, the owner of the building, is getting some advantage uh, because of having that tenant in that space, you cannot use the convenience or proximity in order to increase the rental value. Now, typically in real estate, we always say it's location, 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 and location drives the value. But that's not necessarily true as you're dealing with rental of office space because you know, you're supposed to take a look at it that convenience uh, to a potential referral source uh, should not be taken into consideration. Now, where this gets really dicey is with is the cross-reference between fair market value and also what they deem to be the general market value. So what they want to do is you want to, want to look at from a general market value, you look at it either from an asset perspective, it's the date of acquisition or the compensation at the time the parties enter into the service, and you want to look at what well-informed buyers uh, or people who are selling their services, what they would typically generate uh, from that transaction. And so this is really focusing on the subject transaction using market data. And this is a good thing. I've always inferred in the fair market value definition that you, know, you can look at you know just general market, but market is very specific and it's usually what's happening in your service area. So some people call these business judgment factors. I call them subjective factors, but things that you can look at when evaluating an arrangement from a fair market value perspective to determine you know, whether or not there is a disconnect between the cash compensation or the amount of compensation and productivity. Productivity, and I'll have one whole episode talking about the application of productivity in the benchmark data, but typically when you're applying productivity and compensation, you want to see some type of an alignment between productivity benchmark data and compensation benchmark data. But since we're looking at the subject transaction, there are other factors which could justify, from a fair market value perspective, a disconnect between the compensation and productivity. 
So what are those? Things like board certifications. You may have a national or regional expert in a specialty. Uh, You may have a deficit in your service area for a particular specialty. So if you need to have three neurosurgeons, but you only have one, and and because of multiple factors, uh, you know, geography, uh, etc., it's a challenge in order to recruit, retain, and employ another neurosurgeon, then compensation may be an issue. You may be requiring a disproportionate amount of call uh, because of the size of your organization, so that has a factor. Uh, An unusually number or high number of hours that are anticipated to be worked. So a typical 1.0 FTE is 2,080 hours. You may be requiring or thinking that you're going to have uh, 3,000 hours uh, that the individual is going to, going to be working. Now, there's still a 1.0 FTE, uh, but because they are working more than 2080 hours, you can definitely compensate them f- for that. Now, there's also been an entanglement between fair market value and the volume and value standards. As most of you know, that the compensation cannot take into account or be based upon the volume or value of referrals. And uh, so there you know, a lot of the things that CMS has stated and as well as court cases have stated, there's a coupling of uh, fair market value and the volume or value standards, even though they were separate standards. Uh, in the final uh, rules that became effective in January, they definitely now have have removed the cross-reference. So there's no reference in the fair market value to volume or value, and likewise no reference under the volume or value to fair market value. So there are separate and distinct issues. Now, some people will say, well, does this really, really matter? Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say that you have a productivity-based compensation arrangement with a physician or a, a group of physicians. It's called them primary care. And we're going to have uh, two subsets. One subset is our low referrals, uh, referring physicians. The other subset will be our higher referring physicians. If we if we tell the lower referring physician group that you will receive $30 per WRVU, but you high referring physicians, we're going to pay you $50 per WRVU, then the volume or value of referrals is going to be taken into account when you're determining what fair market value is going to be. Now, having said that, $50 per WRVU may be fair market value, uh, but it's now taking into account uh, the volume or value as you're establishing the compensation arrangement. So, you know, in effect, you know, there may not be a huge difference between the two, but from a legal perspective, there is a difference between fair market value and the uh, volume or value standards. And so they, what they have tried to do is they've tried to keep that separated. And as well as like if you're going to give some, someone a fixed salary, a fixed salary can also still be based upon the volume or value. So even though it's not based upon individual productivity or individual work RVUs, if you take the volume or value in order to establish compensation, especially if you're taking into consideration the downstream revenue, like the referrals of ancillary services, inpatient admissions, x-rays, laboratories, and the like, if that is being taken into account, then that could be problematic uh, when establishing even a fixed compensation arrangement. So just a little bit about the benchmark data, uh, because I said I was going to cue this up closer to the end of the episode, and that is 
the CMS in the final rules recognizes that the benchmark data is not the end-all be-all. Uh, I view it as a, a very good starting point. You look at the alignment between productivity, uh, like visits, uh, collections, reimbursement, productivity, and align that with total cash compensation. But even CMS gave some examples in the final rules where even if you are aligning their productivity uh, with their total cash compensation because of the great standards of living or the low, uh, low cost of living in a certain market, that it may be justifiable that the compensation is going to be less than the productivity benchmark in other circumstances. And they gave one uh, example, like an orthopedic example, where it was the hospital, the hypothetical hospital, was attempting to hire a very specialized orthopedic surgeon. And by looking at just straight productivity to total cash, that that benchmark alignment may not have justified fair market value because it was possible that the compensation could have exceeded productivity. And so there would not be alignment between the total cash and also productivity. And I'll cue this up now. I typically like to see total cash compensation not exceeding productivity by greater than 10 percentage points. Uh, but that's a general rule until I flip over into the subjective factors. So we'll talk about that in future episodes. So now we've come to the point of this episode to talk about the three Captain Integrity Punch Points. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, fair market value is a pinnacle issue. Uh, Captain Integrity Punch Point number two, you can use any commercially reasonable methodology in order to determine fair market value, uh, not necessarily wedded just to the benchmark data. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, uh, you can apply the fair market value defensibility factors to the subject transaction, not necessarily application to national benchmark data or regional benchmark data. So to recap, the three Captain Integrity Punch Points are number one, fair market value is a pinnacle issue. Number two, you can use any commercially reasonable methodology in order to document fair market value. And then Punch Point number three, uh, you can apply a subjective or business judgment factors in order to support fair market value. So until next time, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.